Well, good morning, Redeemer. It is wonderful to be with you all this morning. Uh, if we have not yet met, maybe today is your first time or you were here last week and I wasn't. My name is Chris Lejeune and I serve as one of the elders here at the church. Now, over the last year, we have been making our way through the Gospel of John. And as we've made our way to the Gospel, we have been looking at it through the lens of this overarching point, this overarching theme that we find in John chapter 20, verse 31. The author writes that these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Everything that we have looked at, everything that we have been considering up to this point and where we will go after this has been given so that we would believe. And our passage this morning is no different. Now you may have noticed that Jonah read the entire chapter for us uh, and that was really so we could just get an idea, a feeling of the context of this prayer. However, our focus this morning will be on the first five Verses. That is where we will be spending our time. And then next week, Pastor Scott Zeller will take us through the remaining verses of the chapter. But before we dive into our scripture this morning, before we dive into our passage, let me take the opportunity to pray for our time together. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we do come before you in our weakness in the struggles of this week, in the highs and the lows, Lord, knowing that we need you for everything, that we can do nothing in and out of ourselves. And Father, I pray that as we come to this text this morning, prepare our hearts even now. Give us humble hearts. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear that the truth of your word may transform our lives. That we would love you all the more when we leave this place than we do right now. That we would be in awe of who you are and who you have revealed yourself to be. Father, we pray that you would glorify yourself through our time together. Father, you know my weaknesses, you know my struggles. Be with me this morning. Strengthen me to be able to be a faithful herald to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we finished off a section of scripture that is often referred to as the upper room discourse. From John chapter 13 verse 1 right through to John chapter 16 verse 33, we have been witnessing this interaction between Jesus and his disciples, this interaction as he's been preparing them for his departure, as he has been telling them what life is going to be like when he leaves, what it's going to be like for them for life without him. We've seen the Last Supper. We've seen the foot washing. We've seen that one of these disciples will betray him. We've been told that there is a new commandment, that people will know who Christ's disciples are by their love for one another. We have seen the foretelling of Peter's denial. We have seen the promise of the Holy Spirit. Christ has warned his disciples that they are going to be scattered due to the hatred of the world. 
Jesus reiterates the work of the Holy Spirit and reminds his disciples that their sorrow will turn to joy. And then last week, Pastor Daniel took us and finished off with this idea that Christ has overcome the world. Now, in the other Gospels, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see this transition from the upper room, and immediately we're out in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is going to go and pray, where he'll be betrayed by Judas, and, we, and where he will be arrested. And we'll get to that in a couple of weeks' time in chapter 18. But between the end of the upper room discourse and Jesus' arrest, we have this, this linking chapter, chapter 17, which, as the 19th century minister J.C. Ryle puts it, is one of the most wonderful chapters in all of Scripture. Friends, remember now, at this point, we are less than 24 hours away from Christ being betrayed, wrongfully tried, hours away from Him being beaten, mocked, and nailed to a cross. And in this moment, knowing what lies ahead of Him, He turns to His Father in prayer. As Matthew Henry comments, this was a prayer after sermon. A prayer after sacrament, a family prayer, a parting prayer, a prayer before a sacrifice, a prayer that was a specimen of Christ's intercession. Look again with me at John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Our passage begins, John notes, he says, when Jesus has spoken these words. We see here John making this transition from this upper room discourse to what's been said with the disciples to this prayer. When Jesus has spoken these words, he lifts his eyes up to heaven. Now, two things for us to note here. First, this very often was a typical manner in which Jesus prayed. We think about him giving thanks. We think about him at Lazarus's tomb before he called Lazarus out. He lifts up his eyes to heaven. This is no different. It's something we even see in the Old Testament. Psalm 123 directs this. The second thing for us to note here is that John is most likely including this point, showing that he is while well, as the other disciples who were with him were witnesses to this prayer. We're often told that Jesus went off to pray or, or drew away by himself. But this is the longest, most detailed prayer that we have of Christ. And John is showing that he was witness to it. Christ lifts his eyes to heaven and says, Father, the hour has come. Now, throughout the gospel, there have been around 22 references to the time or the hour. Uh, the word depends on which translation you're, you're using. 
I mean, we think of Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well in Samaria. He says to her, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. While this is an example of this term hour or time being used, um, it does talk about an hour coming. Eight of these 22 references are very specific to Christ personally and his hour. So if we think about John chapter 2 verse 4 at the wedding in Cana, where he turns the water into wine, just before that, what does he say? He says to his mother, woman, my hour has not yet come. We see it again in John 7, uh, 7.30 and 8.20. Both of these instances telling us that no one was able to arrest Jesus. No one was able to lay, able to lay hands on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. However, when we get to chapter 12, verse 23 and 27, these texts start telling us that his hour had come. Jesus talking about his death, telling his disciples that he needed to die, that he needed to be lifted up, that his hour had come. And then we have two more occasions before this prayer, and they're found in the very beginning and the very end of the upper room discourse that we've been looking at. Chapter 13, verse 1, and chapter 16, verse 32. Jesus saying that his time to depart has come, and the implication would be that each of his disciples would be scattered to their own home. And then lastly, we have the start of this prayer where Jesus says, the hour has come. The first three of those uh, references that I gave you are highlighting that Christ's hour had not yet come. But these remaining texts are telling us that his hour had indeed come, that the time was now. But it's not just the hour of death as he makes his way to the cross. It's, it's the hour, it's almost the culmination of all of redemptive history up to this point. The promise that was made to Adam and Eve in the garden that one day the offspring of the woman would come crushing the serpent's head while the serpent bruised his heel. It's the promise that was made to David that God would establish his throne forever with a king who would never depart. All that God had promised, which had been expected throughout the ages, it was culminating at this very point. The hour had come. The time had arrived. That's why no one could previously touch him. That's why no one could lay hands on him because his time had not yet come. But it was all leading up to this very moment. Father, the hour has come. And it's in this moment that we see Christ making the first of two personal requests in this prayer. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Christ's first request is that He be given glory, that God would give Him this glory. I mean, th th this is quite a request, right? We know that God does not share His glory. We just looked at Isaiah 42, verse 8, 48 to 11. They both tell us His glory He gives to no other. But here we have Christ. He's making this request. 
Firstly, because as we will see in just a moment, he is equal with God. And because this was part of their plan before the foundations of the earth were laid. While salvation was the plan God had determined from the beginning, it is his own glory that he is most concerned with. As G. Campbell Morgan observed, the deepest passion of the hearts of Jesus was not the saving of men, but the glory of God. And then the saving of men, because that is for the glory of God. God and all his attributes being glorified is the glorious end of all creation and of all God's arrangements and providences. And that is what Christ is requesting, knowing what is about to happen, what he was about to go through. Father, glorify the Son so that the Son can glorify you. How would he do that? Also be done by God carrying Christ through the cross and the grave to a triumphant completion of the work that he came to do. We get an idea of this in verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now we need to spend a bit of time here because the implications for us from this text are huge. As you sit here this morning, as you hear these words, as you read these words, the very words of Christ, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. What does that mean? What does it mean that Christ has authority over all flesh? That he has authority over me? That he has authority over you? That he has authority over the person who is sitting next to you? That he has authority over every single person, whether they believe, him, whether they believe in him or not? Christ has authority over all flesh. Friends, Christ having this authority means that he is our ruler. Whether we choose to acknowledge that or not, it is a fact that is true. We are not free to do whatever we want, live however we want, and think that we don't have to deal with the consequences, that it's okay because I'm in charge. No. We live in a day and an age where we are constantly told that we are our own kings, that we are in charge of our own lives, that we are our own rulers, that we can do what we want. That if we want to abort a baby, then that's fine. If we want to change our gender, that's fine. If you want to sleep with someone, that's fine. As long as you don't hurt anybody. As long as you, you're feeling okay with it for yourself. As long as it makes you happy, that's all that matters. And if anyone tells you different, well, then they're being oppressive. But Christ's words here remind us that we haven't been given authority over flesh. No, he has. And he's been given authority over all flesh. Remember that Christ has been given this authority by God. John 5, uh, 25 to 27 reminds us, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, another one of these hour texts, and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, 
so he has granted the son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man if we think back to this letter the start of john that we looked at all the way last year i think it was in about april or may john chapter one right in the beginning what does john tell us that christ is the word that he was with god at the beginning that everything was made through him and that in him is life christ has this authority because he is fully god from the beginning without creation eternally existing well granted it's one thing to say that but how do you back that up where's the proof what proof did christ have well we have these eyewitness accounts to his life eyewitnesses accounts to his miracles throughout the gospel throughout all the gospels but as we think specifically about john we have seen that whenever christ has been making a claim about himself he has backed it up with his miracles it wasn't just to put on a show it was to authenticate what he was claiming and this didn't come without controversy I mean, we just have to think back to the Pharisees just before this part in John chapter 5. He has this interaction where he says he has authority. Why? Because he's healing a man on the Sabbath. And the Jews begin to persecute Jesus because of this. Firstly, because he is healing someone on the Sabbath. They're missing the fact that an incredible miracle has actually taken place. But when questioned of how he could do something so shocking, how he could do something so heinous like healing someone... Jesus responds, my father is working until now, and I am working. Which, of course, stirred up even more controversy because he was making himself equal with God by calling God his father, which is true. And his miracles were testament to that, but they missed it. They missed that Jesus truly had the authority that he was claiming. Time and again, he demonstrated this authority he demonstrated over his disciples when he called them when he told them to leave everything and follow him he demonstrated over demons he demonstrated it over sickness over creation think about him walking on water or or calming the storm he demonstrated his authority over death when he called Lazarus who had been dead for four days and called him out of the tomb many instances When Christ showed his authority, and in this prayer, he is desiring to glorify God with the authority that he has over all flesh. Now, I said a few minutes ago that the implications of this authority are massive. And there's one more thing that we simply cannot ignore here. While we have seen that Christ's desire is to glorify the Father, that the Father has given Christ authority over all flesh, we see one more Uh, very big thing here Christ has authority to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given him we don't need to earn it we don't need to work harder up to this point we have seen that Christ is the one who is doing all the work he's the one who came to earth with the mission he's the one who is seeking to glorify the father he's the one who is about to go to the cross he is the one who gives eternal life we don't earn it we don't try and win it 
Friends, if you are a Christian, if you are sitting here this morning, you are a Christian because God chose you and Christ, through His work, saved you. Paraphrasing Jonathan Edwards, the only thing you brought to the table was the sin that made Christ's sacrifice necessary. The reason I said that this has huge ramifications because it matters whether you accept Christ, that if you, whether you accept that Christ has this authority or not. It matters. We see here Christ coming to the Father, and as He prays, as we will see next week, we will see His intercessory work as He prays for His disciples. He prays for those who would believe, but the greatest act of intercession would take place on the cross where not only will He give eternal life to all whom the Father has given Him, but He tells us that this is eternal life. He tells us what it is, and by implication, how we get it. Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If ever someone were to ask what is eternal life? You have the answer right there. It's knowing God, knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Christ defines eternal life for us. Eternal life is knowing God. But, it's not, but, but there's an important distinction. It's not just knowing some things about God. It's not just knowing some facts about him. It's a relationship with Him. God's people were given a hint of this, of this relationship that was to come. Because up to this point, we think about the Old Testament, there was no direct interaction between God and His people. It was all done through an intermediary. And then we get to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 and 34. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Eternal life is knowing God personally. And think of it like this. If you were to ask me what I love about my wife, Nikki, and I said, well, she's blonde. She's about 165 centimeters tall. She does photography. She was born in a small town, Grahamstown, in the Eastern Cape province of South Africa. What kind of impression would you take away from that? I mean... You get the idea that I know some facts about her, right? But would it suggest that we have any kind of healthy relationship, any kind of deep, meaningful relationship? Well, no, of course not. But if you were to ask the same question, I told you that I love her because of the kind of woman she is, a woman who loves the Lord, who seeks to speak truth into my life and the lives of our children. A woman who recognizes her mistakes and seeks forgiveness. A woman with an awesome sense of humor who knows how to make me laugh. 
because I have a relationship with her. I've been able to experience that. I could go on, but I, I don't want to embarrass my lovely wife. I know that as she's sitting there, she is getting embarrassed. She doesn't like this kind of attention. Because I know that that's something about her, because I know her. These aren't just facts about her. These are things that come from knowing her, from being married to her for almost 12 years, 12 awesome years. I know these things because I have a relationship that requires intentionality. I don't just know these things by osmosis. You see, eternal life is not just knowing some things about God. It's not just knowing that He created the world or that He sent some plagues to Egypt. It's knowing truths about Him. How do we find these out? How do we find out about these truths? Well, we spend time reading His Word. This is where He has revealed Himself to us. We spend time in prayer. meditating on these glorious truths that he has revealed. We think about the accounts of creation, the fact that he created us to be in a relationship with him. It's the truth that sin will not be tolerated. It's knowing that God alone is worthy of all honor and glory and praise because he's the one who created all things to reveal himself, to show himself to the world. It's knowing that He is infinitely perfect and infinitely holy and our most righteous deeds are like polluted garments to Him. It's knowing that He will not give His glory to another. And it's knowing that there is nothing that we can do to be in a relationship with Him. That we cannot earn or, or climb our way to eternal life as it were. There is only one way to eternal life. That is to know the Father. And there is only one way that we can truly know the Father. And that is through the Son. You cannot know God. You cannot know the Father without knowing the Son. If you have seen the Son, you have seen the Father. Those were Jesus' very words to Philip this very night during this upper room discourse. So my question to you this morning as you sit here, do you know the Father? Do you truly know Him or do you just know some stuff about Him? Is your quiet time or coming to church just so that you can check a box or is it to grow in your relationship with the Father? But as I said, knowing the Father means it depends on whether you know the Son and how do you know if you know the Son? Well, have you submitted to him as the one who has authority over all flesh? As the one through whom we have eternal life. Again, it's not just knowing about him. It's not just saying that he was a good man. We are reminded that the demons know who Christ is. They know about him, but that doesn't change anything. Do you truly know the Son? Do you have a relationship with Him? What does that relationship look like? And by implication, by knowing the Son, what does your relationship with others look like? Are you sitting here thinking, well, I've always been a Christian. I was born in a Christian home. I grew up hearing about Jesus. I always heard about Him. So I must know Him, right? Well, friends, guess what? So did I. 
In fact, I can say that in nearly 39 years of life, for 36 of those years, almost 36 of those years, I have believed that Jesus is real. I have believed that God is real. I believe that God created everything. But none of that meant anything until one evening in May 2009 when my eyes were opened and I went from knowing stuff about God to being in a relationship with Him. Being able to say that Christ is the one with all authority, that He's the one that I need to trust in. It's not just enough to know about Him, but I need to trust in Him in order to have a relationship with the Father, in order to have eternal life. And it was recognizing that the only way that that was possible was if He paid the penalty that he took the punishment that each and every one of us deserve and took it upon himself, was falling on my knees and giving him all the honor, all the glory, all the praise, and seeking none of it for myself. Friends, let me ask you again, do you know the Son? Are you trusting him? Have you put your faith and trust in Christ, the one who has this authority, the only one who has this authority to give eternal life, the one who has been sent by the one true God? This relationship with the Son, this relationship with the Father, needs to have implications for even the way that we treat one another. How do you engage with others, whether they're Christian or not? How do you speak about them? Do you look down on someone because of the color of their skin? Or do you avoid them or, or think that they aren't up to your standard based on their social status or their cultural background? Do you find yourself sharing things about others? Perhaps the struggles that they're facing or, or the, some kind of sin struggle that they're going through under the guise of prayer when really you're just gossiping. Do you find yourself being overly critical of a brother or sister in Christ when you find yourself getting really de defensive when someone is being perhaps somewhat critical of you? Do you minimize your own sin yet are very quick to point out the sin in others? Friends, these are questions that we need to be asking. We need to be asking ourselves. We need to be asking others to ask these questions of us. We should be on our knees praying that God would reveal these truths to us, whether this characterizes us or not. Ask God to reveal our hearts because our, our relationship with the Father through the Son is meant to transform us. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that if you've done this in the past, then you're, you're not a Christian, although that may be the case. And if you're sitting here this morning and, and, and you, this is raising questions about where you are, uh, if, if you have more questions about what you've heard, then please feel free to come and speak to me or, or anyone that you've seen up here this morning. We would love to have these conversations with you and, and try to answer any questions that you may have. But the point I'm trying to make here is this. That your relationship with God has an impact on your life. It has to. There's no way that it can't. And it also has an impact on your relationship with others. 
as you draw closer to God through His Son and realize the grace that He has shown you, how can you not be showing grace to others? As you grow closer to God through His Son and realize how He doesn't tolerate sin, how can we continue to tolerate or excuse sin? When you realize what it costs for us to have eternal life through the Son, how can we walk in pride or think that there is some kind of merit in us to warrant what the Father and the Son have given us? Christ has authority. He has authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all that God has given him. And because he is God, everything, this is what's amazing, is that everything could have been accomplished within the blink of an eye, right? Everything from the foundations of the earth to now and beyond could have all been done like that. But that was not how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit eternally determined that this glorification would come about. You see, friends, there is no, there was no shortcut to Christ being glorified. Look at verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Christ came with a mission. He came with a purpose. He sought to glorify God throughout his life here on earth. We get glimpses of that throughout this gospel. John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 5, 36, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Why? For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. John 9, 3-4, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus continues saying, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Jesus came to reveal the Father to the world. He came to fulfill the promises that had been made in the Old Testament. Jesus came to live a perfect life of obedience to the Father, never sinning, never breaking fellowship with the Father while he was living, keeping God's law perfectly, living the life that we could not live in order to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice on our behalf, dying the death that we deserve in order, in order to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given him. Not that we would turn around and try earn it. Not that we would turn around and say, man, aren't I great that Christ came to die for me? No. That it was for God to be glorified. Christ came and he finished the work. Something that would be confirmed with his final words on the cross in just a few short hours. It is finished. Christ revealed the Father through his life, through his ministry, and culminated in giving himself on the cross, glorified by the Father, revealing his character to 
the world. And that brings us to verse 5 and the second of these two personal requests that Christ makes in this prayer. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. As Christ has given a brief recount of his work here on earth, he repeats what he said earlier, glorify me. Apart from the cross, which at this point is imminent, Christ's earthly, earthly work is complete. His request is that he be restored to the heavenly glory he had before he came to earth as one who is fully God, co-equal and undivided in the Trinity who existed long before the world was created. As period on earth was now done, he requests to once more share in the glory of the Father by being seated at his right hand. As we conclude this morning, as we consider all that we've heard, let me finish with these words from once again, uh, 19th century minister J.C. Ryle. He says, It is needless to say that the things asked in this prayer, both here and elsewhere, are very deep and reach far beyond man's understanding. The glory which the Son had with the Father in the time before the creation of the world is a matter passing our comprehension. But the pre-existence of Christ, the doctrine that Father and Son are two distinct persons and the equal glory of the Father and the Son are at any rate taught here very plainly. It seems perfectly impossible to reconcile the verse with the Sicinian theory that Christ was a mere man like David or Paul and that he did not exist before he was born at Bethlehem. That would be false. Let us learn, also learn the practical lesson that a prayer for glory comes best from those who have done work upon earth for God. A lazy wish to go to glory without working is not according to Christ's example. That's not to say that we're trying to earn what Christ has won for us. That is to say that when you take time, when you reflect, when you spend time thinking of the authority that God has given to the Son, the fact that the Son with this authority over all flesh is now free to give eternal life to all that the Father has given Him. When you reflect that that is you, that you're sitting here because God chose you, because Christ died for you, when you meditate on that, you don't try to work harder. No, no. That transforms your life, and you now seek to live for the glory of God. Not to make a name for yourself, not to, to puff yourself up, but so that God would be the one who gets the glory. We share the truth of the gospel, not that people can say, man, he did such a great job of sharing the gospel. No, no, we share the gospel because we know that is the message of eternal life. That people need to hear the gospel in order to be saved. In order to be saved by the finished work of Christ on the cross. Friends, let us be a church that lives this out. Let us be a church that prays, that encourages, that seeks to glorify God in all that we do. Not so that people can say, man, what a wonderful church, Redeemer or Church of Dubai is. The people there are fantastic. No that people can walk away in awe of who God is and what He's done through His Son.
because he's the only one who deserves all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord, in awe that you would not leave us in our sin, that before the foundations of the earth, the Trinity had this perfect plan in place, that Christ would come, would live a perfect life, that you would give Christ authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all that you would give him. So that you would be glorified. Father God, we pray that our lives would bring you glory. That we wouldn't just look for the extravagant things to point to you, but Lord, that in the small little things each and every day, we would be seeking to glorify your name. We think of Martin Luther, who when asked... uh, what makes a, a Christian cobbler. He says, no, it's not put about putting crosses on all his shoes. No, no, it's about making the best shoes possible. Father, may we be people who, who seek to live our best lives possible so that we would bring you glory, that we would be living, uh, that we would be above reproach, that we would be people that through our lives point to the hope and the glory, that we would be able to confidently proclaim Christ and that our lives would back that up for your glory. Father, may we be a people who constantly pray that it would be you who is glorified. Father, even as we go out from today, let us not be like the man who looks in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he even looks like. But Lord, help us to apply these truths to our lives. We pray that these things that we have considered would transform our lives through your spirit, would would transform, would convict, would encourage, cause us to repent if necessary, that we would grow in our fellowship with you, would grow in our relationship with you, that we would know you, because we know, Lord, eternal life is knowing you. Father, in all these things, We do pray that you would be glorified here and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen.